This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. And this is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Gains Podcast. Your podcast where you might be in over your head if you suggested a topic and no one did the prep work. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, that's not this podcast because we are committed to bringing the awesome to you. And tonight we're talking about being in over your head. We're talking about where you thought you knew what was going on and there was a whole nother layer that you didn't see coming. So we are going to, oh, make a uh, jump around a bit. We're going to go from game to game, talking about the things that can really throw things up, really change up the things uh, in the various games that the TriTech game produces. And of course, since the TriTech games have their mirrors out there and the other games in the uh, gaming verse, uh, I think you'll find this useful. So, to begin, Trav. You know you're in over your head when you're investigating kitchen witches and you find out it's a Brotherhood of Darkness training camp. Bureau 13, you are always operating layers upon layers. There are se- there's secrets everywhere, not only within Bureau 13, but in the organizations that they often go up against, the Sun Yen Yen cult, the Brotherhood of Darkness, the Fundams, all of them have their levels of secrecy. So Bureau 13 is a very good game to have this concept where, oh yeah, we got this. What else is coming? Uh, (laughs) And I picked the Brotherhood of Darkness because Matthias Bolt has the layers upon layers. What is it that uh, Robert Downey Jr. said in Avengers? His secrets have secrets. And he has enough funding to do that. Yes. You, know, you, you run into this, a lot of situations, and the organization or whatever you're up against, they really don't have secrets within secrets because they're just not that complicated. But the, the Brotherhood of Darkness, and especially Matthias Bolt, its leader, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had to explain to my fellow Maze World GM, Gina, what a kitchen witch was. For those of you who don't know, these are the, the like the bored housewives who they find a magic book. Oh, let's do this on a Friday night instead of bridge. Oh, an animal sacrifice. Well, I got some chicken breast defrosting in the freezer. Oh, uh, gum Arabic and um, belladonna. Oh, we've got some herbs up in the closet and in the, in the cupboard. All spice. That's funny. Somebody else mentioned that, too. And when you cast the spell, if it works, it doesn't work out quite the way you want. So the Bureau's called in to, yeah, there's a demon running around in the cul-de-sac over there. Can you take care of that? 
Well, if, you know, Wilma and Betty over there weren't whipping up spells with the wrong stuff, we wouldn't have this problem. But yeah, Bureau 13, as soon as we discussed this topic, I knew Bureau 13 would come up because of the various levels of secrecy and the constant hierarchies that you're having to go through with all the organizations that the Bureau goes up against. And so the Brotherhood of Darkness, of course, came to mind for me, but also the Sun Yen Yen cult and the Fundams, which the Fundams are basically the, uh, how say it without, the neocons, I guess, would be the best way to describe them. I, I that, For lack of a better term, I'm not trying to get political or anything, but that's pretty much when I hear the Fundams. That's, They're an extreme religious group. Yes. Yeah. Oh, God, who else? There are other organizations that I'm blanking on. But yeah, when it comes to getting in over your head, that that's something that I kind of see that, that that partly could be a GM's fault and partly be, you know, just bad stuff on the players, like, you know, bad die rolls all the evening long. Because I was thinking about this, and there are times it could be on either side where you'd end up having that. You could have a game master who just gives you too powerful of stuff. And, you know, it's like, okay, I've, I have to rein this in because I didn't plan this correctly. Or your player's dice could just be sucking all night. I have one player who just notoriously bad dice rolls. And he's like one, one step from pitching them across the room because he'll want to, he'll always come up with these grandiose plans and the dice fail him. So it could be either side where you have where it's, you know, a bad thing. Of course, the main thing, it's that the GM plans it that way where, oh, yeah, yeah, you get rid of the the lesser force. And uh, uh, let's see, a good movie example. Rush Hour 2, Carter and Lee fighting in the spa. They get rid of the guys. And then there's the female assassin with even more of them. And they end up getting stripped butt naked out in the middle of Hong Kong. Because it was just after the first fight, they were just tapped after the second. That would probably be the best example of, you know you're in over your head when. I'm trying to think of other organizations. Oh, Han Solo in the Death Star. Running, chasing oh, God, the- yes! <laughs> <laughs> running down the aisle, or running down the hallway, ah! Sees them, runs back, ah! <laughs> Classic line, that's no moon. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God, I didn't even think of that one. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, getting in over your head, that i that's usually a planned event. That's just mm-hmm. the GM is looking for misdirection. Uh, I'll use a Maze World example, the, the campaign I run with uh, my friend Gina. Yeah, they're fighting a mythological being, a Rakshasa known as Prahasta. And this is, if you look in Hindu myth, he's there. Bless, Bless you. you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, looks like I'm getting sick here, too. Um, <laughs> but then you're finding out, yeah, and they think this guy, he's been throwing all manners of just grief and pain on these on these characters. He's not the big bad. Yeah, they're going to get rid of him, and all of a sudden they're going to find out there's what else out there? He's working for who? Oh, getting in over your head that it is a common theme in role-playing just because you want to misdirect your players to give them a sense of, oh, yeah, we beat them. Oh, great. <laughs> well, hey, I got one for you, Travis. So you're talking uh, you're talking Bureau 13, right? So that 
dips into the, let's see, in Bureau 13, it's Cthulhu Pond. Uh, so, you know, your, your hero, your group of investigators is uh, trying to head off this Cthulhu cult from summoning some kind of really nasty, nasty. You know, of course, the, the premise is always you, you want to stop the uh, the summoners so you don't have to fight whatever this nasty thing is because generally you're not equipped to fight some kind of otherworldly, you know, giant supernatural thing. Uh, and you get there and, of course, you think you're on time and everything's great and you burst through the door and they're all laying on the floor with their brains sucked out. You might be over your head. Oh, yeah. 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 And don't yeah. pull the one where everyone is. They're actually trying to keep him from showing up. And you, of course, kill, kill the person who stops, who's most important for the uh, ritual uh, or you know, whatever. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it may not be what you think it is. Okay. Um, let's see. We do have a bunch of other <laughs> very wonderful games for TriTech. Let us go with Fringeworthy. Mm-hmm. Blix. Well, you might be in over your head if your team barely beats the bad guys and the boss turns into turns all fluffy and white with big gnashing teeth and claws. And you, you realize, oh my god, my whole team's almost wiped out. We barely made it, and this thing is a big giant high meller or master meller or something along those lines. At, at that point, you are definitely in trouble. <laughs> I don't know if any of you guys have, have played against some of the, the, the D20 Mellers uh, or probably haven't seen any of the Savage World stuff unless you're one of the playtesters that we've shared stuff with, but they are ridiculously nasty. Oh, yes. I've used them mm-hmm. even in the Maze World game. Yes. Oh, yes. As oh, we yeah. say, never nerf the Meller. Right. No. Yeah. And technically, they're not bulletproof, but, you know, you swear they were. Well, no, because in the D20 stats, they do have some damage reduction and some regeneration where, yeah, they are affected by bullets. Lots and lots of them. Paul, what is your Skype thing? Your Skype saying there? What is your question? Because full auto is the answer. That is how it is with the Mellor too. (laughs) (laughs) And if you let off these guys, I mean, you got to start pumping them full of lead and until they start to dissipate, you can't stop shooting because you're like, oh, man, I really nailed him. No, no, he's, he's healing. It's Yeah. Yeah, don't let the Meller run away. Yeah, keep shooting at it. Use flamethrowers. So, Catch him on fire. That, a, de- a, dead, a dead Meller is worth having an empty clip in your gun afterwards. If you can't beat him, show him what full psycho means. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but if that happens, you know, you, you did the fight, and then the boss turns out to be a Meller. Right. Okay. Um, assuming that you have bull, I mean, you're saying you have bullets and you just start hosing like crazy. But is there any other tactic that you would use to, to try to get on top of that situation? Running. Yeah, running is good. Running really fast. Running. <laughs> Lots of. And remember, I don't have to outrun the Meller. I just have to outrun all of you. <laughs> right. So flee in a star configuration. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, star configuration or serpentine, serpentine. <laughs> Bonus points for you uh, listeners out there who come back where that movie is. What that line is from? What movie? Yeah, this is why. This is why you always save a hand grenade or two. There, there are a couple. There are a couple things you can do here. All right. So we 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 were talking a little bit before the show about like different roles that you might play. So it depends on your character and your party makeup and stuff like that. But there's a couple things you can do. In all seriousness, you you got the run like heck. 
if you got some kind of survivalist in your group, some guy who's really you know good about um, being tactical with his his ammo and equipment and stuff, uh, he's going to have grenades and stuff, and and you know be able to 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 hopefully just unleash you know the hounds on this thing. There's negotiation. You really should never negotiate with a meller, but if you know you're going to lose. Uh, and your group doesn't care about doing something, you know, th- that could get other people killed. You could try to negotiate with the thing. You could do the hero's sacrifice where one of your guys goes, run, I'll keep him at bay. But but knowing the Meller, if he's a big baddie, uh, you should be exceptionally tough or there should be two or three of you that do that to let one or two or three of the other ones get away. Because he'll go through the first guy pretty quick. Yeah, that's when you pull the pen hand grenade and then let go of Mr. Spoon. When you let go of Mr. Spoon, Mr. Hand grenade is no longer your friend. And then nope. you run at it, run at him. Right. right. If you are holding your grenade and you drop the pin, then you don't actually have to roll to hit. You just have to make a movement. Right. <laughs> it's a little that's thing it. we like to call <laughs> reflex save. Yeah. You can do anything you want with the pin, but if, as soon as you release Mr. Spoon... The striker's released. Yeah, right. we, we know. Yeah, so, you can't put the can't put the pin back in either. That, that doesn't work in real life, and it should never work in a movie. If you're holding the spoon, so you hold your grenade nice and tight, you pull the pin out, you can't stick it back in? Oh, yeah, you can do that. There's you a few dexterous people that might get away with it, but everything moves once it's re- moved out of there. And you got to line up two holes perfectly. Right. But once you let go of the spoon, you're done, because that's a fuse. It's burning. Yep, yep, the little hammer flips over, strikes the primer, ignites the fuse, and you got r- approximately four seconds if it's a properly manufactured one. Oh, oh yeah. And then, and that's if you don't have a bolo bean or or something that's faulty manufactured. When you see in the movies where people are like, "Yeah, I'm gonna cook this grenade off," it's really not a good idea. Well, cooking the grenade off is a legitimate tactic, and it is actually used. My guy's name's Stumpy. <laughs> no, it's a yeah. legitimate tactic, and it's taught. If you're going to throw a hand grenade somewhere where the where the enemy could immediately pick it up and throw it back, such as into a foxhole or into a room, you release the pin to Mississippi's and throw it. So they only have two seconds to recover it and send it back to you. But what if their fuse is a little faulty? Well, um, nice you that. may not get it out of your hand before it's gone, or if yeah. it's or if it's a bolo where it's intentionally a zero second fuse. Or you could be a fatalist figure or a fighting Miller. So I walk around carrying a um, Iraqi uh, bomb vest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, is yeah. No, there is no smarter bomb than to put a hang, hang explosives around a person ready, who's willing to die. Yeah. Yeah. I'll save you guys. Run for it. Boom. So, Paul, you got one. You might be in over your head if the leader of the fringe pirates is the only adult supervision for the disposable first reconnaissance. So you fighting these guys, they're going down, but the, the, the tough guy, you get a hold of him and you realize he's only like the third lieutenant. And he's just there to supervise these who are fringe worthy, but they're all from a low tech world and they're considered expendable. They're just sent through the portal to make sure it's not a problem portal or it's not a guarded portal or something like that. Or you find a pirate base and they're just the locals. They've, they've shanghaied into working for them. You kill a bunch of these guys and you think you've done really well and then you realize, oh wait, this is the, they, they're working for the Coptics. Ah, 
just one of their advanced advanced scouting parties or something like that. When you find out that this guy isn't really the big bad, he's a junior lieutenant to the big bad, but it took all of you what you've got to suppress him, to get through to him. You can't just walk away like, oh, we got them. Uh, let's just leave and uh, hopefully we won't run into the other guys. To realize you're in over your head would be that you're like maybe you're in the base or you take them out. You take out this this party and you realize, uh-oh, that gate that we went through about a mile back, That I think that was um, – <laughs> we're, we're in their base. Yeah, or or that you know that because he's not coming back, somebody bigger and meaner is coming to find out why. Right. And for some reason, you can't go back through the portal right away. And, and, and remember, pirates are smart. They're not in it. They're not in it to kill everyone. They're in it to make money. So yeah, while you're busy fighting, he's going to do a holding action at that point and send someone back. So yeah, oh, you're good. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, the... or, or perhaps you're several, you're several platforms down, like maybe 10, 15 platforms down. You take this guy out, you go back, you take these guys out, and you're like all happy with yourself. It's a little rough, but you, you won the day. And you go back to, out to your cars, and uh, they're all disabled. Mm-hmm. They're all up on blocks, stripped for parts. Right, right. And hey, you're like, what happened to our uber cool, fringe-worthy wagon? Yeah, um, and they know we're here, and they know where we are, and it's a long way home. The Uber Cool Fringe Wagon is not strip; it's not there anymore. Oh yeah, you get out there, and you're, they're just gone. <laughs> you know, there's just a pile of stuff they consider worthless, and everything else is. If it if it drives, it's 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 theirs now. Why is our Muscovy up on blocks? Yeah, yeah, that'd be an interesting. That's an interesting, different take on the. Uh, you you might be in over your head. Imagine you you're sent on one of these long missions where you're out. You know, thirty platforms. You come back out and your vehicles are gone and there's no one anywhere. Like the world you go into is like a a a, a jungle that doesn't really have. You know, maybe it has like uh, maybe it's the Dino World or something where there's there's no technology really there and you don't know any of the other worlds around you. And you come out, and your your vehicles are gone. Yeah, and you know the nearest friendly pocket stop or friendly place is like five, six platforms that away. Right. So you're kind of in over your head on that one. Yeah, and as Bruce said, the, the French paths are the worst desert you're ever going to find because there's no water. So then it comes into what do you do? I mean, like, what do you do, John? Oh, dear. I mean, if in that situation, I go back in that jungle – and it may not be po- – well, it's not portable now. It will be portable when I bring it back through and get as much water as I can because I got to walk. <laughs> right. So in other words, you're saying stock up on the world that you know. Yep. Yeah. And, then, you, and then go for and go for a walk. Unfortunately, you may have to boil the water even though you know you're going to go through the plat- go through the portal and get cleaned. It won't clean the parasites out. Right. Well, that's, that's the same case as going you know, yeah. one portal too far. And you yep. get down there and you get onto a platform where there are no resources to help you get mm-hmm. back. Oh, yeah. That's, you, that's you've got to leave your Muscovy behind. you got to leave your solar stuff behind. you got to leave your giant battery, all your uber cool toys because you're taking the left, right, left express. And then you curse out the guy that said, we don't need our bicycles. We got <laughs> all this stuff. Right. Or you could have taken the idea that was an infinite crossroads, which was to bring the fringeworthy rest stop along with you and drop one off on every platform you went by on the way out to your uh, adventuring zone. 
then you only have to make one platform before you can get some relief. That assumes it's still there when you get back. I also assume you also you can get the budget from the UN to do it too. From the who? The the UN United Nations. Yeah. Okay. You mean that first fringe-worthy pirate organization? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh. All right. So let's say worst case scenario. Let's say you didn't prepare. Okay, and you got to walk. You, you got to walk it, and you're out say fifty platforms, and the closest thing you know of is. Where, 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 how far out do you think? Uh, say twenty-five platforms, maybe. If we're middle campaign-ish. Well, no, no. If this, if you're on fifty platforms, this should be someone within five or six that you would know of. It should be considered friendly. At least I hope so. But that's that's that you would know of. Say it's, it's five platforms. That's two hundred and fifty miles. Okay, well, it's still two hundred fifty miles on foot. Yeah, and that's five whole nodes. Yeah. Right. 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 There's a lot of platforms on nodes. So what do you do? I mean, would you try to investigate some of these along the way out of desperation, you think? Or do you think you would just try and push on like you would like if you were in a desert? I mean, because, you know, stepping through a platform cold could be could be worse than just just moving forward. Well, here's a question. What are, what are you? Are you a, are you a, a, a scout scout group going to scouting places? You're not really going in and checking. Things. You're just going in, checking, you know, for you know, stuff and then leaving. Well, yeah. Spend no more of the day in a, in a, in a, in a portal. You're, you're more independent than the guys who come along and they're going to spend a week or even a month in that platform. Right. Because the guys who can spend a month, well, they, they, first they're going to live off the land, hopefully. Uh, so they're not going to, they may not bring as much as, as you scouts have to bring. Have to bring. Uh, but even then, you'll probably have whatever, whatever is on your back, whatever meals you stuck into your backpack. MREs or wherever they will be in a, in a mid campaign, and eh, yeah, two hundred fifty miles. There was that went pocket stop, right? Yeah, it was bad. Well, you know what? This stuff there's edible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, okay. So as a game master, you know, you're not going to put your players into an adventure where they're just going to die, where they don't have a choice. So I would imagine that. You know, after a couple of platforms, you look for something that's open. You know, it's like when the game master starts telling you, "All right, that's it, you guys. If you don't get some water soon, or you start taking, you know, fatigue or damage from, I don't know what the D twenty rules are, but I know in, in um, Savage Worlds it'd be it'd be fatigue. Uh, you start taking fatigue from um, from not having water or food or, or or just every day. Yeah, yeah, Pete, you lose levels in D twenty. You lose. Oh, good God. Okay. Not permanently, but I'm just saying is that you get down to zero level, you're really pathetic. Right. Yeah. And you hope that you're, that you're one of several teams. Of course, it could be that, yeah, you're one of several teams, but the other teams are just as bad off or worse. Right. You know, I mean, if it's a mid-campaign, you're, not, you're probably not the only team out there in the out 50 platforms. But the trick is, do you know where they are? You still mean right. looking at a couple hundred miles of walking just to find them, right? You know, I was kind of going with the premise that you're you're way outside the normal zone that you would go. That's sort of the premise of what I was going with this. Like, say for example, I don't know, maybe maybe you guys were set up. Maybe a pirate came in and was talking about something awesome he found, and he sold it to Idet, and Idet said, "Okay, great, send a team out." Um, and it was actually the whole time it was a trap. So you're you know twenty maybe maybe you're twenty thirty portals, thirty platforms away from the nearest thing that you guys know of. Ouch. 
So I was thinking, you know, that that's kind of like a maybe maybe I got duped. Yeah, that could happen. In, in that case, yeah, then it's find find a friendly place and see if you can scare up some sort of vehicle or something. Another thing that can happen is that you go out there because you heard that something was really good and you get to the platform and just then you get a jelly firestorm that consumes your vehicles. Oh God, yeah, okay, right, right. You guys manage to run around the bottom side of the platform, okay, but your vehicles are not going to make that tip over very easily. Right. Nope. You run to a fringe walker, talks about something, you know, X number of platforms down, turns out the fringe walker is uh, actually a pirate's couch who's, who's looking to, you know, to, to, to set you guys up. You know, and you, get, and you get ambushed. Or, you know, or maybe it's when he, when he was there 10 years ago, it was it was great. It's not great anymore right now. <laughs> right. Or it's a group of old men who think completely different than we think in terms of how far something away is on the plat you know, on the platforms because they just travel the stuff all the time anyway. So, you know, ah, it's it's just down the way a little bit, you know. Well, really it's twenty platforms to them, that's no big deal. Because they just well, we would just walk until we get there. They do two platforms a day. Right. So it's no big deal for them. You know, they're used to it. They're conditioned for it. And they sort of know where the friendly spots are. So, you know, I need some more water. Boop, there he goes. He finds the water. All right, then. Well, um, uh, uh, John, uh, you were going to talk about um, Hardwired Hinterland? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You might be in an over your head if you're in the boneyard and you're up to your eyebrows and eye-eye ganache trying to get yourself a DC-3. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with uh, Hardwood Hinterland, there's a spot on New Akron called the Boneyard. It is covered in DC-3s. This is why DC-3 is the most common aircraft in uh, in Hardwood Hinterland because uh, there's already sorts of them. Uh, they've actually salvaged more than uh, more than 200 of them, I believe, so far have been salvaged for the Boneyard. The trouble is. The boneyard is uh, is guarded by this species called the I.I. Ganache. Otherwise known as the wild men. Yeah, the wild men, but they're, they're worse than wild men. If they're human, they're a, a branch of humanity that really went sideways. Uh, they're really hard to kill. They, they, they do attack in mass. So this is one of the key, but you know, you're lucky. You only use obsidian swords. If you try to get an airplane out of there, remember these airplanes don't fly. You have to haul it out of the boneyard. So you're there with with your gunners and so forth. You need to actually go in, go in there with like with a fire team to really get one of these airplanes out. Uh, there is a fire base you can operate from, but you know when you're out there, you're trying to pull a decent DC three, and now you're being attacked by swarms of uh, I got nosh. Uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to remember that you're you were there originally to get a DC three. Sometimes <laughs> definitely will be using uh, using up a lot of uh, weaponry and so forth. Uh, also, um, they have scars. Now, if you understand how when we talked about hardware hinterland, people don't scar. Basically, your scars sort of go away. Not for the I.I. ganache. They keep their scars. So, like I said, they are different than we are in various ways. So, Or I'm, I'm thinking that, I mean, the scars disappear after a while. Yeah. Right, I mean, you re- you regenerate over time. If you lose an arm in the hinterland, it will grow back. It yeah. could also be that these II ganache constantly rescar themselves. That's true. They like they like a certain scar. You know, ick. 
which that kind of you know creeps me out thinking about that. I'm I, I'm sorry, the I, I Ganache. I, I'm I'm drawing a blank on them, and I've read Hardwired Hinterland. I'm getting a Reaver vibe from them. A Reaver. Fl- oh, yeah, Reaver. Re- yes. Yeah, they Reavers, are definitely. Yeah, they are Reavers. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, uh, I was the, thinking of the uh, the human gorilla hybrids from that Congo. Congo. Yes, Congo. The Guardian Apes, yeah. Which, you know, actually, I have a feeling that between the the I.I. Ganache and the Guardian Apes, it'd be a fair fight. And they attack in large, in, in mass. If you if it's a really bad day, somewhere, I would say, on average, between um, 11 and 110 of so, them. Question, John. <laughs> yeah. Do they, do they attack in mass as a unit, or they just attack in mass as just a giant group of individuals? Let's see. Do, they, do they cooperate? Um, they tend to, well... You know, where one distracts while another attacks you from behind. Uh, no, they're sort of actually in it, it. They basically are all individual attackers. They attack as a bunch of individuals. So they're opportunistic. Yes. They also have some uh, large wolf-sized dog-like lizards that they, they, they also will send out as well. Uh, amongst them, so yeah, if you're if it's a really bad day, you're dealing with 110 Ai Ganache and their puppies, and you may not have enough ammunition to deal with them. So if you see an Ai Ganache, it's time to leave. Yeah, and if you're working on that DC three, you really want to get you're going to be torn because uh... <laughs> why they're not going to do anything to it. No, they're not going to do anything to do it, but, you know, uh, they may, well, you never know. It may, it may come along and move it because things move in the, in the boneyard. You know, when you go out there, you're scouting because it's never the same twice. So either the I.I. Ganache moved the planes or you've got a bunch of, uh, um, oh, what's their name again? The monkeys? Guardian apes? No, no, they're the ones that build things. Oh, the uh, Restorkies. Restorkies. Out there making more airplanes and just dropping them in place. You know, we don't know, you know, because it's always a scouting. You're always out there scouting and looking for good planes. Most, a lot of them are in bad condition, some are in good condition. So you, you don't have, have a be, shifting landscape? Yeah, it's a shifting landscape. But so, I, mean, I mean, as you watch, is the landscape moving like segments, like tiles sliding past each other? It's one of those foggy valleys that you can't see too well. well. Actually, Paul, the answer is no. Yeah, it doesn't do that. Huh. It's not that. It's not. It's not that um, uh, chameleon. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it, it's basically it's a, it's a valley five miles across, and it's permanently shrouded in cloud and fog. So you really, they have cover. They know the terrain. Um, they got the home court advantage. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also a lot of other guys that are out there also trying to get stuff out of the boneyard. So it's quite possible that if you see a bunch of them, you hunker down, they may move on because they're going somewhere else. They may not actually be after you. So it, it, stealth is good. You know stealth what? Is- this this sounds like one of those opportunities where you find like a sort of hunters that are using that as their ritual to become, you know, from young adult into a man or or a warrior in their culture. They go out and pick a fight with the inhabitants of this boneyard. Mm-hmm. Either that or it's or it's it's a, a hunting party. Yeah. Oh, and also, by the way, uh, like I said, they're not human. 
they have three hearts and they have a brain and a hind brain. So they're really hard to kill. So what are, what are your options here? So you said hunkering down and hiding is one of them. Yeah, and hope that their, their lizard dogs don't sniff you out and, and, oh, and wretch you out. Well, that's if you can't just flee. Yeah. If you can flee, flee. So the run run is number one. Hide is number two. You can't deal with them, right? There's no no. There's okay. So there's no negotiating with them. Here, here's their. They have four attitudes they could have: blatant screaming, screaming before attack, singing minutes before attack, and stealth attack. No warning. <laughs> I see a theme here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So fighting, you can fight them, of course, if you know if you're feeling so inclined. That that's one option. Not the best option, but that's it. You got three options. It's, it's either fight, hide, or run. Yeah. yeah. So I can I can see your team, your your PCs being hired to be the distraction for a DC three recovery team. You go off, you go off a mile to the left or right and make some noise and draw off the I I ganache. Mm-hmm. Fight some for a while and fight a fighting retreat, all the while drawing them away from the DC three recovery team. Yeah, and the smart ones will bring in their own airship. To hook onto DC three and haul it out that way, because once you get off the ground, you can turn on a lightning crystal and make the thing fly. So the trick there is mounting a lightning crystal to the DC three, so you can then get off the ground. If you can get off the ground, you can make it light as a feather, and then you just can haul it. In. Yeah, just hook a balloon to it and carry it away, and worry about all the rest of it later. Yeah, trick is getting there to hook the balloon to it and not get a spear through your head. Now, luckily, most attacks are individual a single person will come along and scream at you and attack and he gets cut down the resulting gunfire at that point uh hopefully uh but the a rare case where you're dealing with with you know literally a hundred of these suckers eh, yeah it's time to it's time to say that was a nice airplane we'll come back later i like claymores <laughs> they're good for a party of four with no reservations yeah well, well you have to convince the scotsman to give it up though Oh, oh, wrong Claymore. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, there, there's another option, which is the alternative to the running away. It's kind of the an, uh, an alternate version of running away. And that is, is where you get one of the uh, very small, not commercially useful lightning crystals, and you hook yourself up a nice little unit, and you put it on yourself, and you reduce your own weight by 95%, and you do one of those John Carter Mars leaps. There you go. Because they, those guys are not using technology outside of the Stone Age. Yeah, they're, they're using obsidian-tipped weapons and their fists. Right. So. Oh, God, PL0, PL1 against guys with firearms and explosives? Home court, home court advantage is their only advantage, then. Well, that and if they don't die, they regenerate and come back. Yeah. You know, horde tactics. Yeah. And they're super tough, Trav. Uh, as you're shooting at one heart, the other one's the other one you shot's fixing itself and, and coming right back. Uh, you literally you would have to if you want to kill them, you either got to decapitate them or blow them up. Hmm. Okay. Flamethrowers are good too. Oh yeah, not really. No, flamethrowers are really good against creatures that will die normally. You know, they, they have to breathe and all that other stuff like that, and and these do. But I'm just saying, is it a lot? Uh, it takes an awful lot to destroy a human body with all that water in it. So if you like hit him lower, like let's say the waist, you could burn his legs down. He might be laying there in agony, not being able to reach you. But that's not going to kill him. Well, yeah, but I'm I'm saying he he still feels pain, right? 
Oh yeah, oh definitely. And I'm sure they're they're scared of fire. Uh, oh yeah. Come on, they're primitives. Primitives use fire beater. Come on, Bruce, fire bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, it's, it's it's the guy that's got the two got the two bolts in his neck that's afraid of fire. <laughs> and he's the product of science. <laughs> These guys face down guys with machine guns and okay. discharge. You know, so fire. Oh yeah, it means my it means my get to you. I catch you on fire now. Well, Let's face it. If you can regenerate, you're going to taunt people with machine guns. Well, no, no, they don't regenerate any faster than you do, right? No, no, no. But yeah, they they will eventually grow back. I mean, actually, I was thinking about that on uh, Hardware Hinterland. While you most doctors, what they do is amputation. You smash your hand. Yeah, don't worry about. It. We just cut it off. And you grow a new one. What you're really going to have is a lot of psychiatrists because PTSD in this world uh, in Hardware Hinterland is like rampant. Well, hold on, wait, no, I don't think so, John, because one of the things, remember in Hardware Hinterland, it has this effect where, like, when you get there, you're not freaked out by it. You, it has this calming, accepting effect to the land. So that might be one of the things that actually is calming and is part of that. There's an awful lot of quiet ones, people that just kind of go into a stupor and wander around. They got people who shepherd them. No, well, I was reading in the I was reading in the book, and I was saying that you know it says right in the character creation that you know when your character gets there, they might be initially freaked out, but all of a sudden they just come to grips with it, and everything's fine. So I think I think the hinterland has sort of a a soothing effect to it. Maybe at least that would be my guess. Either that, or maybe that's one of those edges that's given to the PCs. Yeah, it's because you know the violence that goes on in this world. Ah, no, no soothing at all. I'm just saying what the rules say. I'm, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just just going with the rules. <laughs> so, so speaking of strange worlds, Bruce, what's Weird Zone like? Well, I'll tell you. You might be in over your head in the Weird Zone if a life cloud lands on your zero plot. And not only does it make everything fertile, it also acts as an aphrodisiac. Oh. Uh-oh. Is that the, the one that makes things grow, too? Yes. It makes everything that is organic, was or ever was life, go. You know, it's, your, your boards will pucker up and start sprouting branches. Uh, your house can literally rip itself apart. Your books... Your books, yeah, your books will sprout. <laughs> yeah, your books will sprout. Your grass will grow like, like you know, yeah. like an alfalfa field. And all that seed corn you've been uh, keeping back, so you can start your planting next week. Well, it's planting itself wherever it is. Well, hold on. What if your zero plot is a cemetery? Then you're gonna have a lot of grass. <laughs> and. Uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't create zombies. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let me give a little little backstory here. Again, those of you who are not familiar with Weird Zone should go and listen to our episode on Weird Zone, uh, or a couple episodes we did talking about this game that was released by TriTac about a year or so ago. Um, in this game, basically your house and about a hundred feet around it, so like a two hundred foot diameter, suddenly uh, gets grabbed and thrown into interdimensional space and you go flying through it and you end up landing on one alternate earth after another and you're in weird space about maybe 36 hours or actually more like 
12, 13 hours, and then you're on the world for about 36 hours. It varies, but, you know, and then you basically get into, into issues. The game itself, depending upon your group and depending upon your GM, is going to be either a goofy adventure or it's going to be survival horror or it's going to be a pirate adventure. Because most people, if you look around your house, it seems like you got everything you need, except that when you're on a zero plot, all utilities just got cut off. All your water got cut off. Your sewage, well, your sewage still probably works. It's just going to drop off into the great void around uh, your your zero plot. So your, your house is basically just turned into a house in the middle of the desert, you know, with, with a little bit of scrub land around it. Yeah, your you, you toilets get one flush. And so you're going to be spending a lot of time in the first few adventures just trying to get your zero plot self-sufficient. So that's where I'm saying where it can be survival horror. Uh, a lot of people, what they do is they say, well, you know something? Since every time I go onto this world, no matter what happens to be barring death, I end up back on my zero plot flying off again in about 36 hours. I'm just going to become a pirate. I'm just going to be, we're going to be a raiding party and we're going to go out and we're going to go and get whatever we need and bring it back to our zero plot so we have what we need when we go tripping off the next time. And therein is where you can get in over your head. Oh, yeah. Actually, my players so far have been nice about not raiding things, but they have been getting in over their head a couple of times. Well, it's hard not to sometimes because if, for example, someone gets hurt. You don't know if the next place you're going to is going to have, as Trav put, a PL1 technology level. Their doctor may say, mm, let me put this bug on you. <laughs> okay. And unless you're really, really lucky, that bug's not going to help you. Uh, and, and neither is the bloodletting to get rid of the bad humors and all the other stuff. So you might, you might be really interested in hitting that uh, emer emergency uh, uh, urgent care center and grabbing as much uh, medical supplies and yank it back to your zero plot as possible. After that, you might say, well, we'll just do it the one time. Well, it's a slippery slope. Anyways, so what I wanted to tell you about is some things that you should look for, not so, uh, so much in weird space, but when you land on a world to maybe help you realize that maybe you're about to get in over your head. So, for example, look for the number of police cars on the street. You see a lot of them, there's many, many more just out of sight. And they will be able to respond quickly to a call to help. Yeah, there's strange cults. If you see farmhouses painted up like sitting out in Nepal, but you're in Kansas, yeah, maybe something weird going on in that barn next door. You don't know. Look for the presence of personal firearms. Does everybody carry them? Historically, even in the Wild West of America, most people didn't go around armed in town. Guns were for protection from animals and a means to hunt. If the weapons tend to be handguns or military-grade weapons, you get a, you're going to get a lot of pushback from the locals if things get rough. Well, it's like in a lot of medieval adventures. They will ask you to check your weapons at the city gate because they don't want trouble. If you're walking around in a medieval city with heavy armor on, like plate mail, they're going to assume you're looking for trouble because usually the only people wearing plate mail are the like the city guard or soldiers. So, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Constabulary yeah. of type. Right. Yeah. So, in a weird zone adventure like that, yeah, personal firearms. If you've seen a lot of them, there's a reason why people are carrying them. I mean, we've all seen the movie where the two hardened criminals decide to rob the bar. That's the local cop hangout. 
and all of a sudden there's this sudden clicking sound, and they look around, and and the, the bar with a but with a bunch of fat guys just turned into thirty or forty handguns in very very steady hands. Why am I reminded of the scene in Due South where the Mountie comes in? I need you to relinquish all of your guns, and then just shit, <laughs> and that knife, and it ends up in the wall right next to him, and he just goes, "Thank you." <laughs> It actually, it was a real life thing. There, a criminal decided he's going to he's going to rob a store. So he breaks inside, pulls his gun, holds your you know, this is a stick up. He picked a gun store that was frequented by cops. <laughs> <laughs> I know that story, and it's in your state, John. Yeah. Yes this this Darwin Award winner actually had to go around a police car <laughs> to go into the gun store first. Well, we're assuming that in these stories that we're telling about getting in over your head that you're not a Darwin Award recipient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, oh, yeah. Another thing that you might look at is the percentage of men versus women versus children. If the latter two are very, very low, there might be a shortage. Okay. A smiling crowd can turn into a raging mob if the children or women are injured in any way. Oh, yes. Or they may look at your women. <laughs> or you're playing a party of women. I was thinking, are you referencing um, the Heinlein novel, The Moon is Arch Mistress? Actually, that was my thought. You had these soldiers, and they were pushing people around, and everybody was putting up with it. And then they went and grabbed a kid. And the room dropped about 30 degrees in temperature, and... About five guy, you know, about five people, adults got injured, you know, s- severely, but not one of the soldiers made it out of the room permanently. When you're in a game like Weird Zone, you don't know what the society is that you're landing in. You know, you have to be very careful about that. And generally, you know, if you can, you want to do a little scouting. But eventually, you're pro- you know, again in the early days when you're really desperate to get your hands on stuff. It might take a lot of risks. And then later on, when you have all kinds of equipment, you might start feeling a little cocky. Oh, I've got this Smith & Wesson thing, and these guys are walking around with bows and arrows. Well, a uh, U-bow can fire through uh, an inch of plate mail. Actually, if you step one of the worlds in the book, the uh, Zaloon world, you may come away with an alien zap gun. Unfortunately, it only works in a few places, and... Yeah, you, when you pulled out that one time to stop that charging at Mastodon, uh, it doesn't work the way you thought it was going to work. <laughs> Back to you, Trav. You know you're in over your head when you're dealing with the Srinivasan family and you find out that they're working for the Price family on a project. That would be referencing the Kabbalah families from Bureau 13D20 created by myself and Eric the Enabler. The Kabbalah families, another secrets upon secrets, because these are all families that are like, oh, the Illuminati, oh, that was something we created. They actually are the many of the forces that run the business and political and all those type of different fields of human existence. And the Srinivasans were a minor family. Uh, they were the Cabal's mediators for two millennia. The Price family is based in Augusta, Maine, and due to dabbling with a little bit of dark power back in the day, like, you know, three, four, five centuries ago, how, how could I describe them? 
uh, kind of like a D&D warlock from Complete Arcane, where they're throwing eldritch bolts and stuff, and they also dress in these very fine suits. So, uh, what is the term I'm looking for? A vassal family? I guess would be the best way to describe the Srinivasan. Yeah, they're still a powerful family, but if you find out that, okay, yeah, we just got rid of these agents of the Srinivasan family. What do you mean they were working for the Price family? Oh, the Price family are also the family with the most bureau contact. They're the ones that lent about 150 of their best and brightest to work with the bureau because they both know how to fight secret supernatural battles. There's also covert enough covert wealth in this family to buy a third world nation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, the, the Kabbalah families would be another one where you think you're getting one thing and you're getting something far worse because they've been doing the secrecy thing for like millennia. There are some of these families that are tied into the pharaohs. Like, oh, God, uh, the Al-Barak family in Egypt. Their major source of power is maritime shipping. They also are fighting with the Aylmer family over that, where they kind of, they're fighting over control of the seas. So, yeah, let's see. The, their roots trace back farther than the average person knows of recorded history. They are a group of families who control the powers behind the powers behind the throne. They have manipulated world events that define history. They possess power of all types, socioeconomic, magical, technological, and psionic. They're extremely long-lived, ambitious, capable, and patient. They are as willing to confront an opponent as they are to simply outlast them. Yeah, you're getting layers with them. Misdirection. Obfuscation. Obfuscate? How the heck did it even translate? <laughs> Manipulation? It's a Farscape quote. Ah. <laughs> There's too much obfuscation. How the hell did that even translate? Yeah, um, yeah, obfuscation. Yeah, they're smoke and mirrors. The cabal is doing that because they're trying. As I said, they run things behind the scenes. They would be the perfect bureau entity, I guess. Would you'd have to say because some are for the bureau, some are against the bureau, some would be neutrals. They are the ones that are going to be smoke and mirroring everything, where you think you're doing something and you're not. So, yes. Paul, do you have another one for Fringeworthy? Where you might be in too deep when? I say you might be in over your head if you have to make a deal with the bad guy because there is someone worse than them. And I say this because mm. you, maybe you've run into a Kegak techno-geneticist who has it out for humanity. And you've got to make a deal with the Coptic leadership because you're too many portals away from Earth Prime to do something about him. Mm. Well, if you can get the Coptic to hate them, then that just falls under the enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know. <laughs> you got no friends on any side. So you have to make a deal with a demon to combat the devil. Exactly. Oh no, there was a line in the Justice League comic book like 15 years ago when you shake hands with the devil, you keep your other hand firmly on your soul. So, Paul, when you have to make a deal with these with these guys, these uh, this this other entity, let's let's take your example. You have to deal with the Coptics to deal with this Kegak engineer, Kegak technogeneticist. Okay, so you're having to deal with the Coptics, someone who can manipulate machines and grow the animals to operate them. 
why do you have to combat him? Is he threatening threatening Earth or something like that? Hates all humans. Okay, so he's threatening Earth Prime, say, or a potential. Every platform that has humans on it. And the Coptics are human. Anything that's Homo sapiens sapiens. The only thing that makes you and the Coptic and allies are both humans. Right. That's that's your only common goal there. You're both human, so the Kigak is your common enemy. He's worse than either of you feel about the other. So Trav, he's making a deal with the Coptic, right? What does he have to do to make sure that, that the Coptics don't get the best of him? Does he make sure that he, he keeps certain informa- information to himself? We've all agreed, with help from Paul, that the Coptics are Korean War-level tech. Yeah, you're not gonna. And this Kegak is a technogeneticist, which means he's growing machinery. We're talking that. I oh god, that would be in D twenty parlance again. At least PL eight. And we're at what? We are at PL five. The Coptics at early PL five because remember PL five starts at 1945 when the atomic bomb is dropped. Once atomic energy is manipulated. So begins PL5. So they are just past that point, the Coptics. And this Kegak technogeneticist would be probably PL8, maybe 9. You're playing a dangerous game here. This is the spinning the plates on the 6. Because, yeah, you want the Coptics' help to take out this Kegak, but you don't want the Coptics to gain any of that technology. Granted, they're not going to be able to use any of it because they got three or four tech levels in between them, and so you get the Arthur C. Clarke phrase, every broken clock is right twice a day, even a blind nut can find a squirrel. You know that the Coptics are going to op- operate one of the devices if they get a hold of it after they beat the Kegak. So you got to sit there, okay, we want your help, but not to where you're going to have access to any of this guy's technology. So you're advocating a scorched earth policy. Well, yeah, you'd have to because... It, it's the whole thing, if if we can't have it, you can't either type thing. Because if the Coptics get their whole their hands on it, they're going to figure out how to work it somehow. Yeah, you've got that problem where you guys are helping each other, but you're only helping each other just enough. Yeah, You want to make sure the other guy doesn't get an advantage. Well, the Earth Primers have a tech advantage on the Coptics anyways. And numbers advantage because they've got like the I-Dead Alien Corps. The Coptics... They just have whatever slaves they can pick up. So, so, Paul, you're saying that we shouldn't follow the American policy of arming our enemies? <laughs> oh, The enemy of my enemy is my friend? Yeah, exactly. Or, or the guy that's convenient this week. It was, a, it was only a convenient dictatorship. It, until he has a revolution and then all of a sudden we're the great Satan, yeah. Actually, I can actually see how that can go really bad, especially because diseases don't transfer across the platforms. And so he's got some way of transmitting that disease. I just saw one way. He creates a parasite. The parasite itself does not carry disease, but it can create the virus as, as one of its functions. So it gets some place and now it makes, starts making virus. You create a parasite that when it latches onto a human, it mm-hmm. creates lupus. It fires off the victim's autoimmune system to attack itself. We can just go down the list of different ways you can use biology to kill people. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Lupus, okay. Doesn't the fringe path sort of boost your immune system anyways? Yes. It does. 
But I'm saying in the bag of tricks, this you put loop. If you have somebody with lupus going for through a fringe path, your autoimmune system is already getting out of control, and then you get the fringe path's effect of boosting that. No, it would it wouldn't be to your negative. It'd be to your positive because it cures cancer. At least it puts it into remission, going traveling the fringe paths. Oh, I was yeah. going to say, you might as well, uh, what's the phrase? I'll say it pleasantly, pee on the fire and call on the dogs on that one. If you've got lupus right. and the fringe pads does that to your system, no, 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 no. Right. No, it, it's it's more useful for you to be a carrier and you go into a world and you release it there. This is one of those weapons you, the Kegak technogeneticist would release on a world and you don't want the Coptics to have it. While they may not be able to manufacture it themselves, they could grow more of the parasites and carry them somewhere else. It's a weapon that's not affected by the fringe path. Because you don't want the Coptics to get a hold of this Kegak either because it's like you're working for us. And then here he is, he's making it. So yeah, you don't want, yeah, you would have to have a scorched earth policy where it's just go in and destroy everything that you see as long as it's not you guys or us. Yeah, you'd also want a policy of every man stands alone in that we are allies, but we are not Father Christmas. We're not going to raise you guys up tech levels. You guys have your equipment, and you know how to use it, and that's much more effective than us introducing new stuff for you. Yeah, everybody play to your strengths. Yeah. So you play your strength, and we'll play to our strengths. And you know, later on, if we can work out some kind of a, a live-and-let-live deal, then maybe we can talk about that, which is, of course, an entirely big lie. Oh, yeah. No intention of doing that whatsoever, okay? That, I think that would have to be built into the agreement that, no, no, we're, we're not going to go and show you how to use pocket nukes and things like that. It's, yeah, of course, you, you can't carry them across. But... Uh, John, if you have a device that can create antimatter at your location, you don't have to carry it across the platform. That's true. Antimatter is a much better pocket nuke than uranium. And, of course, you all have to worry in the back of your heads that the Kegak is going, Yes, they're coming here, and they'll be caught in my trap. I'll infect all of them. They'll go back and destroy everything. You know, one of those things. <laughs> you already know you're going up against the devil, so, you know. Uh, you might also want to take the policy of nobody goes home. We have to find ourselves some nice little world somewhere that is hopefully not too nice because we don't want to affect the you know, we don't want to hurt the indigenous population by anything we're carrying. But this is one of those things where everybody you know knows that their their ticket was punched before they they got on the bus. Or or the uh, the commander of the commander of the, of the French Raid team happens to be an NPC because as you as 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 the last person goes through, he doesn't. He goes to the, over to the pylon lock. No one's coming out, and hopefully he's got enough key to make sure that that no one comes out at that point. <laughs> Which only lasts in. until somebody comes along with a key and unlocks it. Yeah, but yeah, you know, uh, at least he, he, you know, it's locked, and at least whoever's in there right now ain't coming back out. And hopefully, whoever the. If you're really good, you know how to go up to a pylon, insert a key, and then disrupt the pylon and create a problem portal. No, you're really good. You go reprogram. If you could turn every, any portal into a replicant of the uh, the one in the Libyan sand sea, you've more than locked it. Well, you might know you're in over your head if you take your crystal, stick it into the into the pylon, and open the portal, and then all of a sudden it turns itself off again at a higher level. 
That's true. Oh. If you can reprogram, you, you, you know, the thing is, you're talking Kegak. He may be an old Commonwealth Kegak, which means he probably knows how to do that himself. Yeah, if he's a techno-geneticist, he's probably already learned the whole thing of anti-geria treatments and everything, and has been around for a long time. Just remember, a, a techno-geneticist does not mean he's a uh, fringe path engineer. No. Oh, yeah. But, right. So, but he may have a uh, rainbow key. He might. That would, be, that would be great to get your hands on, yeah. Yeah. But you're busy mutating from whatever disease he's given you. Uh. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. And this is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.